A reporter approached the wife of General Douglas MacArthur said, ma'am, it must be wonderful to be married to such a great man. She said, yes, I only wish one thing. I wish that he would change his religion. The reporter said, well, how is that? She said, I would like him to have a religion in which he is not God. (laughs) Um, Is there a God which we need to refuse? As we come to the God revealed in Christ. Is in fact our conception of God. Inasmuch as it is not shaped by the person and work of Christ. Likely to stand in our way of a relationship to who God really is. Do we need to get rid of one conception of God. Let me state it. Overstate it perhaps. Do we need in a sense to pass through a kind of atheism, to refuse the belief in a certain understanding of God, that we might clearly recognize the God of the Bible. Um, If you, this question, if you would uh, approach it in terms of uh, the university or even many uh, Christian colleges, they would answer the question, why no? John Hick will talk about a religious pluralism, that God has many names, and all of the names then are like spokes on a wheel, and all of the names will take you to the center of the wheel. Uh, Or like many paths that go up a mountain, the various religions then all lead to the, the peak of the mountain. Hick says, all religious traditions affirm a transcendent and benign reality. That is their common core, but they approach it in very different ways. Uh, This sort of religious pluralism presumes that there is a kind of equal and direct access to God available to all. Another form of this would, uh, would be a kind of inclusivism. Paul Tillich talked about God as the ground of being. And so we all have equal access to God on the basis of this ground. Karl Rahner talks about anonymous Christians. That is that there are people who are acting upon Christian principles and ideas that have simply come to them through nature. Through the history of Western thought. Schleiermacher, Hegel, Lessig, Kant. The majority of philosophers and theologians Uh, And even those working today would say uh, that there are many avenues to God, either through pluralism or through some sort of inclusivism. We get this uh, in conservative Christianity through the notion of available light, that God's available by various means in different ways. And so there are parallel paths. Uh, Vatican II, Thomism, you know, for the history of Christianity, the idea that there's been two forms of revelation. There's revelation in the special revelation of Christ, but there's revelation of God in nature. Natural uh, revelation then uh, is a parallel way of coming. Uh, Hans Kuhn has stated it that there is salvation outside the church and outside every church. All people of goodwill can attain salvation in their own religions. And we can call these, he says, anonymous Christians. 
uh, available light, you know, according to the light that is available, people can achieve something like Christian salvation. In this reading of the New Testament, for example, when you come to the Gospel of John, instead of John being a kind of anti-Gnostic understanding that is over and against uh, the word that is available, there would be a proto-Gnostic understanding that in some way John is just saying Jesus is the Logos and the Logos, the word is available to all people everywhere. This would be Paul Tillich, Karl Rahner. That is, that a Greek philosophical concept is incorporated into the New Testament. Uh, the God of religious pluralism and inclusivism is one that would fit into, I think, an already existing worldview. That is, you already believe certain things and you just add Christ or Christianity onto this. Uh, What I would say is, well, no, Christianity involves a complete change of worldview and a clear difference in the understanding of who God is. Now, I think we may be getting off course a little bit in just talking about this in terms of religion. Uh, That was our discussion today in Sunday school. That there is a tame Christianity, a kind of mild Christianity, that would just fit our middle class morality, our middle class values and tastes. And the notion of God here is one that would not disturb our lives very much. But I think we have to seriously ask ourselves if this is the true picture in the New Testament and if it is the true picture of God. Now, before you, you, you're prepared to reject what I'm about to say, um, And what I'm about to say is that the New Testament is uh, presenting a radical departure from common sense. It's presenting a radical departure from a balanced understanding, from a comfortable way of life. Before you're prepared to say, oh, wait a minute, let me assure you, I'm not asking you to immediately do something about it. Just listen and see, okay, is this what the New Testament is saying? Let's figure it out if it's really telling us this. Uh, If the God of the New Testament is really the God of capitalism, of nationalism, of paganism, uh, is this the God we're called to believe in? And once we establish the radical nature of the New Testament, then let's figure out what to do about it. But let's be sure... Uh, what the New Testament is saying. And of course, let me just, I'll just, I'm going to read the New Testament now, so be prepared. No, I'll just, I'm just, I just hit some high spots. Just, I, just some random verses. Uh, you know, throughout the New Testament, Jesus came to defeat Satan, who is pictured as the ruler of this world, as the ruler of the prince of the power of the air. Judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out, Jesus says in John. And you were dead, Paul says in Ephesians, in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them too, we too all formerly lived, an all-inclusive statement here, don't, don't think that anybody gets left out, in the lusts of our flesh, 
indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. From Ephesians. Um, From Romans. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. I think Paul's talking about everybody here, not just a special class of people. We know that the law is spiritual, but he says of himself, I am of the flesh sold into bondage to sin. For what I am doing I do not understand, for I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. And of course here we come to our, the place that we're at in Romans, the comparison between Romans 7 and 8. Do we actually get a different picture of God in these two chapters from a Jewish perspective, a Jewish and a Gentile perspective, if we understand that he's really talking about all people here, and that the conception of God, I believe he's telling us, is wrong. The mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. Paul will talk in these stark contrasts. There is the life of the flesh, the life of the mind, because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God. And it is not even able to do so. You can't get there on various paths. There aren't many ways. I don't think that's what Paul's saying. Uh, It is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. If anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If you're living according to the flesh, you must die. I could go on, you know, just passage after passage of the stark picture in John between two worlds, in Paul between the world of the flesh and the spirit. This is the way that Paul begins Romans. I believe he's talking about everybody when he says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. All have fallen short or the, of the glory of God. I believe that all are involved in the process he's describing of professing to be wise. They became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man. They exchanged, I believe he's describing the human condition of entering into a deception. But we see it in Genesis 3, but we see it also in uh, you know, the chapters after the Tower of Babel. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature. They did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer. And of course, the stark contrast in John is between light and darkness. In him was life, and life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, And what does he say? The darkness did not comprehend it. I believe we cannot comprehend who God is apart from Christ. So in the New Testament, this darkness ruled by the prince of the power of this world, following the principalities and powers that Paul talks in Ephesians and Colossians. uh, These have been conquered by Christ But nonetheless, they're powerful to the end. The subject of this world are torn between flesh and spirit. And Paul describes the one 
longing for God, the other opposing him entirely. The point is there's no comfortable middle ground here. There's no areas of gray in which, you know, well, you got light and dark and then, you know, some people are kind of in between. That's not the picture we have. Uh, that there are those who follow Christ and there are those who reject him, those who belong to the kingdoms of this world and those who belong to the kingdom of God. One is either a city of the countries of this world or one is a citizen of the heavenly city. So the religious problem in scripture is tied up with something even more profound than the various you know, religious manifestations. I, don't, I think we could even say it, that it's not so much that we lack religious truth. Um, in Judaism, there's truth given to us, but there is clearly a distorting effect upon our understanding of who God is because of the human condition. Not even the Jews you know, discover a middle way. If anybody were going to be saved apart from Christ or through some sort of other revelation, we would find it in the case of the Jews. But they're continuously pointed away from the idolatry to which they would turn. You know, they're going to take the temple rites and sacrifices and incorporate idolatry. We find in Ezekiel, you know, this picture of people in the temple worshiping the sun, facing the east as the sun rises from the courts of the temple. Is Judaism true? Well, that misses the main point. <clears throat> we might answer, of course, it's true, but it, sell, it fails to solve the central problem, and that's the problem that's addressed in Christ. The truth of Judaism is itself distorted by sin. The truth <clears throat> of who God is revealed in nature, I, I believe that, that that's there, but it's distorted by our sinfulness by the perverse way that we would, you know, understand or apprehend God. Yes, the Jews have the very oracles of God, Paul says, but nonetheless, uh, they are like all people, they're fallen. So what we need is not simply a true religion to replace false religious notions. You know, that, that may not be getting at the, at the, the essence of things. The problem is that man is rebellious. This is Soren Kierkegaard. You know, it's not that man lacks truth or man is ignorant. It's that man is in rebellion. We have continually, like MacArthur, shaped God to the image of our desires. Man's conception of God, even in the best of religions, is subject to, I think, this distortion. And this comes to the heart of the matter. Christianity is itself subject to these same distorting effects if we don't get in mind that even here there is the danger of falling back into a misconception, a misconstrual of who God is. After all, isn't that precisely the reason the New Testament is written? Because people, even having received the, you know, God himself in Christ, their tendency will be to distort even uh, this message. So I think this brings us back to our picture and the resolution of the problem that we have in Romans. That 
You know, what is the problem? What's the, the heart of the problem? Well, again, it's man's desire. Uh, it's his understanding that desire itself is in some way mistaken for the life force. Desire, Paul says, is deceived. Our very experience of the way in which we want things is projected onto God. Who God is in Romans 7 is very different than who God is in Romans 8. And so there's a singular problem portrayed in Romans 7. And I believe it accords with idolatrous religion. That is, what is it that happens in uh, you know, the pictures of idolatry in Ezekiel? The object of the idol is there and the idolater is here. And they're pictured as an adulterous lusting after you know, her lover that it's exponential desire. Paul is describing the entire human condition, the problem of human sinfulness, as one of a wrong, deceived desire. Idolatry and the desire of Romans 7 is one that really defines everything. Uh, Jacques Lacan says, don't compromise, don't give way on your desire. He's a you know, secular psychoanalyst. Why is he saying this? Because I think like the idolater himself, he's confused life and the life force with the force of desire. Um, everything must be sacrificed. That's the picture in Ezekiel. Why would you sacrifice your children? It's fidelity to desire. It's giving every, everything over to this exponential desire. You know, when I say this, or, or we picture things, people often turn to Buddhism, and they say, oh, well, Buddhism is the answer then. Because Buddhism is a kind of departure and a recognition of what we're saying. But I think Buddhism is the perfect illustration, not of a religion which gets rid of desire, but rather one which is focused on human desire, desiring to get rid of it, but in fact caught up in the bind. Paul in chapter 7 pictures desire or covetousness as the root of sin, as the root condition of the human heart. And I think, you know, Paul's referring here to everybody in that he's referring to Genesis 3. He may be referring to the uh, giving of the law, the 10th commandment. Uh, But in both instances, there's a means of establishing the self. And in some way to maneuver God so as to attain what he has. And that then is pictured as a reaction to the prohibition in the garden, to the the law in Exodus. And in both cases, uh, it is the disorienting uh, relationship to God. That is that when man has fallen, we don't understand not only ourselves, but we tend to project a misunderstanding about God. Uh, there is a kind of distorted understanding that functions as almost like a mechanism in which we would imagine that we can access God on our own terms. That we can come to God in and through the law. In and through the law of nature. In and through, you know, we could name this law any number of things, but the picture is always the same. Oh, there's a parallel access. Paul says, no, that life in the spirit is the alternative. Paul contrasts the mindset of the, you know, set of the flesh and that of the spirit. Let's, let's read verses 5 to 7 
in chapter 8. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Um, The mindset, I think, of the flesh, he's pointing back to chapter 7. He's described that construct. And the second is the spirit or life of peace, and that's the picture that he's filling out in chapter 8. And what he said in chapter 7 is there is an alienating gap within us, in the ego or in the eye, producing the dynamic of desire. What Paul will say is the body of death, that we're given over to this all-consuming desire so that it ultimately consumes us. It's the orientation that Paul describes as a slave to the law of sin, as a life of fear. The answer is not to in some way, oh, get your gap closed or to in some way, you know, get yourself together. Um, But I think the answer, we've described this previously as life in the Trinity. That what's missing in chapter 7, what's missing in the eye is the body of Christ. What's missing in the, you know, the law is Abba, Father. What's missing in the body of death is life in the spirit. And so for Paul, life in the spirit solves the struggle of the ego, the I. The subject in Christ has peace. Not in the sense that in some way the gap within us is is closed, but rather in the sense that that whole dynamic, that whole frustrating pursuit of God through our Uh, deceived desire is undone. The conflict is halted. But it's halted because of the positive peace of the indwelling spirit. So we might characterize the difference between God in chapter 7 and chapter 8 or the subject there as the difference between the attempt you know, to be one's own God or one's own father or Uh, in some way establishing ourselves as the ones who can come to God through our own power. Sort of MacArthur's point, you know. Uh, That's his problem, but that's the human problem. There is that, I will be my own father. I will be, you know, or even an idolatry that the gods are ones that I have created. Or we can be a child of God. And the attempt to gain life through the law or to become the father of God, that's rebellion. That's uh, not ignorance. That's not, it may involve uh, willful ignorance. But that willful ignorance, I believe, lies at the root of human religion. The dynamic of desire is a rejection of God as father. A, rele- a rejection of that entails a hostility toward God. This may may sound strange to you. Why an inherent hostility? Um, I think that it's, it's, uh, if you'll bear with me, allow me, you know, in in a psychoanalytic understanding, if you ask what's wrong with people, 
They're masochistic. They would harm themselves. They would sacrifice themselves. Um, I believe that we can trace that in the New Testament. Even the law of God becomes the law of sin and death in which it's twisted into a kind of pursuit of salvation that he who would save his life, in fact, loses it. He sacrifices it. Who created this punishing, angry God? The God that exists in idolatry and this God that demands sacrifice. You know, this is the picture in Ezekiel. You took your sons and daughter whom you had born to me and sacrificed them to idols to be devoured. Were your harlotries so small a matter? You slaughtered my children and offered them up to idols by causing them to pass through the fire. Besides all your abominations and harlotries, you did not remember the days of your youth. And when you were naked, bare, and squirming in your blood. Then it came about after all your wickedness. From Ezekiel 16. I believe that the picture here is they're sacrificing everything. They're sacrificing even their children. Why? For what? Well, in some way, as a kind of guarantee that there is a God, there is an other who can be appeased, a God whom we can control, a God who will fulfill our desires. Under the law of sin and death, the God we would conceive is not Abba Father, but rather it is this God who is going to consume our children, who is hungry, who is angry. There is an inherent hostility towards this God as perceived through the law because we've distorted the law and distorted God so that God is pictured as demanding continual sacrifice. Paul says, I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Paul pictures the law not only as an impotent, thing but as in fact it becomes oppressive due to sin over and against the individual the law entices and condemns as it holds out the promise of a transgressive knowledge apart from God you won't die you'll be like God's knowing good and evil I think John Hick and Satan begin to sound very similar to one another that we imagine that apart from God and life on the basis of our own power, our own works of righteousness, we can access God. Paul's resolution to the alienation of the subject of the law is to become a child of God in Christ. When the sinful mind is where it's hostile to God, the one adopted as a child has overcome this hostility and has come into an immediate relationship with God in which he cries out, Abba. Father. The picture is a fulfillment of what Ezekiel talks about that the heart of stone will be replaced with a heart of flesh, and God's Spirit will indwell His people and enable them to keep the law. The move from law as alienating and oppressive to the law written on the heart as it's pictured in Jeremiah, I believe that's what's happening in Romans 7 and 8. Romans 7, there's the law 
But the law is an objective force and a punishing force in which the heart remains unchanged and the person is alienated in his mind and his body. And then Romans 8, there is the heart which has the law written upon it in which we indwell the, you know, the, the spirit or the spirit indwells us. Paul in the end of 7, who will rescue me from this body of death? Well, his cry is in chapter 8, Christ Jesus has rescued me. And he can cry out, Abba, Father. The God who is lawgiver in seven is Abba, Father. And this difference is wrought, Paul says, through the Spirit himself, who testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. The conclusion then is that I've given you a radical picture of Christianity. I think our immediate impulse is to turn and run away from this or to in some way tame it and say, oh, surely not. Uh, What we need to recognize, though, is this radical faith is only something we can do together. And this is Paul's picture of righteousness. The, The corporate or familial family nature of righteousness is implicit in the term. We often get the picture of this radical Christianity or of righteousness as something we're going to accomplish on our own. I don't think we can do it on our own. It's not something which an individual has on her own but it, or independently, but it is something one has precisely in one's relationship as a social being. That in a koinonia, in a fellowship, in a corporate identity, not individually, we can accomplish this radical nature of Christianity. It's something we can do together. Uh, Maybe one of us cannot claim, you know, love, joy, peace, long time. Maybe we don't all have all the fruits of the Spirit. But corporately, can we say that we portray the fruits of the Spirit. Together we can have love, joy, peace, long-suffering. So Christ is the firstborn of a new family. That's Paul, you know, in chapter 8, that's the writer of Hebrews. And he provides then the perspective of the successful outcome of a justification or righteousness that's already received. But we've got to picture the fact we've received it corporately. God's covenant faithfulness to his people is the fulfillment of his righteousness. And in turn, the faithfulness of his children to this relationship, a familial, corporate relationship, is their righteousness. Righteousness is being brought into a right relationship with God And overcoming alienation and hostility towards God, absolutely. But this resolves the alienating conflict between ourselves so that our access to one another and our access to God is of the same type. So God is fulfilling and has fulfilled his righteousness in those whom he has called in Christ. That's what Paul says in verse 30. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. The calling or summons to this relationship and his accomplishment is, uh, as with every God word that God speaks, it's so certain that this relationship, this reality, this corporate body 
is a certainty. We can be certain of being a child of God. There is, an, you know, I think an ontological experiential ground to this certainty. And this stands in contrast to the oppressive demands of the law. It stands in contrast to the obscene God or gods of idolatrous religion in which that punishing picture is undone and we can cry, Abba, Father. Let's sing our number.